You're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library, and I'm joined by author Maureen Dumphy. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming into the library to join me. We've we've done quite a few author interviews in the library here and on this podcast, but as a sign of the times and the COVID era, this is the first one in a long time I've been able to do in person, so it's a little exciting for me. They've been all over Zoom, which is fine. Help me out with the pronunciation about this. I hate to start the podcast just like this. I never know if it's divining or divining. Oh, it's divining. Thank you, divining. Think of the divine. Yes. Divining. divining. A Memoir in Trees is the newest on Wayne State University Press from Maureen Dumpy. Congrats on the new book. Thank you so much, Jeff. It was a really fun book to write. Each chapter is named for a different species of tree, but you're also telling the story of your life. I guess, can you tell us about how the idea for this book came about? You'll be surprised. (laughs) It's not what you're thinking. Okay. So how this idea came about was I'd written a book called Great Lake Island Escapes, Fairies and Bridges to Adventure. Which and it was I should say I should have given the bona fides oh. a Michigan notable book from 2017. There you go. Yeah. So that book was a different kind of book because it took two seasons, island seasons, which is like Memorial Day to Labor Day of research by going to these islands. So it was very fun. And I really care about the Great Lakes, and what got me into that was I had a cottage on a Great Lake Island for 25 years, and I thought the best way for people to fall in love with the Great Lakes and care about them enough to to protect them is to be surrounded by water on an island. And at that point, I thought, oh, maybe 10 islands. Well, there were uh, 136 islands that you can get to by bridge and ferry. Okay, so when I was done with that, actually before I was done with that book, Trees kept calling to me. I walk every morning, and my walking partner had noticed actually before I finished the Great Lakes book that I kept stopping to talk about trees and ask questions about trees. And so in 2012, and that was actually before the two island seasons that I researched, so I wasn't anywhere near done with that book, she got me a book for Christmas that was on tree identification. And I couldn't get over the tree thing. Like, in real life, but I wasn't thinking about it at my desk. Mm -hmm. And then um, I started keeping a little journal of questions because I figured questions are a good way to figure out what the next thing to write is. Mm -hmm. And the majority of the questions ended up being about trees, so I got my answer about that. (laughs) And so I set out, I I went, um, I think it was, let's see, it would have been January of 2020, I had written a book proposal by then for Wayne State University Press. So my goal was I really wanted it to be published in the Made in Michigan Writer Series. It was just a goal. So I wrote a book proposal as I had for the Island book, and it was accepted in January of 2020. And then a lot of things happened both at the press and then in our world. By the time I finished the book in March of 2021, what you now are seeing as essays were one of eight chapter features in 16 chapters. Wow. And the only reason the narratives were in the book was just to explain why that species, right? Because I, yeah. the species are not, like if I sat down with a tree book and I said, okay, I'm gonna write a tree book and I'm gonna cover as diverse a species of native trees, say, mm-hmm. they would not be necessarily these, some of them would, but you know, I've, I've got a Norway maple and a silver maple, I've got an English oak and a white oak. Would I have done that if I was thinking that way? No. Sure. But when I got the idea of picking species, Mm -hmm. I sat down and did a brainstorm, brainstormed list of what different relationships I've had with trees, Mm -hmm. and there were 73. (laughs) So 
So then I picked the 16 that seemed most significant, usually because they involved other family members Mm -hmm. uh, is the most common reason why. Mm -hmm. But that was just one little part. Then I had the species and I had these little narratives. But then I went and did a bunch of other things. Now, if in the book, if you notice, there's two appendices at the end. And Appendix A is just called like the trees. Very helpful for people who do not know a lot about these trees. Oh, yes. And so this part of it was one, another one of those eight chapter features. And and this part was like how to identify the trees, like with trunks and leaves and all of that. So... When I took the manuscript back to my wonderful editor, Annie Martin, at Wayne State University Press and turned it in, and this now was March of 2021, I got a call back from her pretty quickly. <laughs> and she said, I love these essays. This is the book. This is the book. And so for 24 hours, I was so flattered that like I have not written had not written essays really seriously in the past. Mm-hmm. Some about writing, essay here or there, but not. And I thought, oh, wow, not just anybody, but Annie Martin thinks I'm an essayist. And then after about 24 hours, I sort of went, oops, I'm publishing a memoir, <laughs> <laughs> which was never my intention. Like if somebody had asked me five years ago or three years ago, like, what's the last genre you'd be likely to publish in? Mm -hmm. I probably would have said memoir because I didn't really have a story in my head. And this didn't feel, now Annie really helped shape the book because she took those, we had to get a narrative arc then. Sure. And that I had not written it with any arc in mind. Arcs on the individual essays, but not in the book as a whole. Mm -hmm. And she was really helpful that way. That's good. Yeah. You know, you're not supposed to ask yes or no questions, but I'm going to okay. against my own better judgment. But this did track for me. This did make sense for me because is it not one of your your goals, your passions to get us to think about how we interact with nature? Imagining the answer is yes. And that is what these stories do. So. I'm nodding because exactly. yes, Jeff, <laughs> the answer is yes. So well, that, it, that this format for you as a memoir made sense to me given your yes. a, a connection to the natural world. Well, I clearly knew that I needed that. Yeah. And that in order to sort of achieve, which was I wanted people to start looking at trees, just like I wanted people to start protecting Great Lakes, right? Absolutely. But they're everywhere. And I don't know the species of all of them. Well, I, I am so hesitant to reveal to Maureen, I don't even know the species of maple currently in front of my house. I just know that it is a maple. I'm sorry. Well, maples look a lot alike. So... If you, when the leaves come out, if the stems are red in the spring and are red in the summer, then you're looking at like a red maple. I think that's so, what I got. Okay. Yeah. Because they don't all do that. Okay. So like a Norway maple, I would tell you to look for something a little bit different. And I still, I have to say, Jeff, like I'm not a botanist. <laughs> so I have a wonderful, I have three tree identification guides that I usually keep with me in the car. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I stop and take a look at a tree. Sure. <laughs> and I want to know what it is. But this book, especially with that appendix, is great for folks and readers like me who obviously have a general appreciation for trees, but we don't know everything about them. And so I could go to the first chapter and the appendix and learn a lot about the tree I'm most fascinated by, which is a sycamore tree. Oh, and that's yeah. the bo- that's the tree that opens up the book. Yes. Well, actually, the tree that opens up the book is not identified in that essay, oh, right. little essay tree. Right. However, I did some research because I realized I had to have a chapter 
this is now before the book was this version. Sure. <laughs> I had to have a chapter and I had to identify what it was. So I knew it was a maple mm-hmm. because I was a toddler when I learned about it. Ah, yes. And the helicopter seeds, right? Yeah. So that was the first clue. And then I did some research into um, the city of Detroit's planting. And, and during the time that that um, tree probably was planted because I have a vague idea of the size and I had one in front of my house when I was writing the book mm-hmm. so it was sort of like okay I know when this tree was planted mm-hmm. so and I figured it was probably planted in the 30s okay. and um, 80% of the canopy in, De- in, De- in the city of Detroit at that time was planted was were Norway maples wow. so unlike they I knew it wasn't a silver maple silver maple is really distinctive and I still can remember that tree so it had to be a Norway maple or possibly a red maple but yeah did you uh, obviously when folks encountered the books uh Great Lakes Island Great Escape. Lakes Great Lakes Island, Island escapes. escapes I love the poetry mm-hmm. that clearly we can understand Maureen is really into lakes but trees that's been lifelong it's been there since you were young yeah and i didn't really realize it so the first essay that i wrote and i did write the essays before i did the information in each chapter Mm -hmm. because i had to sort of like see is this the right essay like and i wasn't calling them essays either i have to be honest about that they were just these little narratives when did you know you were so into trees oh so the first essay i wrote i'm sorry i went someplace else there it's monday the first essay is it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the first essay I wrote for the book was Pages of a Cottonwood Calendar. And why that book was important, why that essay in the book is so important is that was like my whole um, elementary and middle school years. And we moved from Detroit, where there were mature trees, mm-hmm. to Livonia, which was being developed from farmer fields. So most of Livonia was cornfields, mm-hmm. primarily. And the subdivision that my parents had a house built in had been a particular farm. I had grown up playing in the field that was left undeveloped. So if you're familiar at all with the grid in Livonia or even Detroit, there's a half mile street between Schoolcraft, which is the service drive for 96, mm-hmm. and Five Mile, and it's Linden. Linden runs all the way from Brightmore, and maybe even beyond that, but it runs from Brightmore neighborhood where my dad grew up through Livonia. But at the time I was growing up, there were two blocks that were field and it was not had not been developed yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard for me. I drive through there occasionally and it's like, wow, how can this only be two blocks? Because it was so magical and so big, the field. And why the cottonwood stood out was that's the only trees that were left and they were left along the banks. Now, they could have been your your favorite friend, mm-hmm. the sycamore, because they, you know, ghost to the river, they line rivers mm-hmm. and you can see where they are because they turn white, you know, when they lose all their, their bark. But the, the, we call them poplar trees, but they were truly cottonwoods, which are in the poplar family. Um, and the neighbors hated them mm-hmm. because of there were only three of them and they were actually on the other side of the field but they were on the bank of this creek and those are the trees that i saw first thing in the morning and last thing at night and they seemed wild they were growing wild Mm -hmm. as opposed to all the trees that people were planting these little sticks of trees in the yards because there was no other mature trees so and you say uh sycamores living near water and i know that because i learned from your book that they enjoy a low floodplain, which i didn't know until i got to the end of the book yes uh, <laughs> which is why i have a sycamore growing in my front yard the one yeah. i wrote about because 
we're on the bank of what was Red Run River. It's okay. Red Run. Run means creek. It's mm -hmm. an Eastern term for creek. Mm -hmm. So a little river used to run in, and um, it was put under the ground in the 20s, I believe. And so, but you can still see that in our whole front yard is a, a very deep front yard, mm -hmm. and it's a, a floodplain, and our house is built on what was, a, was the bank. I just love sycamore trees. If you thought that maybe you had wandered into the middle of a fantasy novel, a land that you didn't know existed. <laughs> like it, these are large, hulking, bumpy, scaly, interesting trees, these sycamores. And I live on a street that is completely lined with sycamores and I've driven around Ferndale quite a lot. And there's some sycamores here and there, but I live on the only street where it's strictly sycamores and then two random maples. It's very interesting street. Oh my street. goodness. And you know, I, I we raised our family in Ferndale, mm -hmm. but I didn't realize Oak Park, the city planted on the easement, there's many streets that are lined with sycamores. Interesting. Which, and, and in Detroit there's some, but I didn't know there was a street in Ferndale. It's, it's, a, it's a tree that can shed its own bark. It has to shed its own bark. Yeah. It can't, its bark does not stretch. So when you look, say at a maple tree, mm -hmm or a honey locust tree, mm -hmm. you see all the little ripples oh, and yeah. that expands over time. But the only way that a sycamore can enlarge its trunk is by shedding its bark because it doesn't stretch. Wow. And it doesn't do it regularly. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not like, oh, it's August and it's starting to lose its bark. It's very interesting. I've tried to, especially since the time that I've been working on this book, it's like, there must be some kind of sycamore calendar. Like there must be, but not mine, no. If I can find it in my phone before we end our recording, I'm gonna show you a picture of the sycamore that oh, I admire you. most. It's, a, it's such a bright white. The other thing that strikes me about this book is that I always feel, especially if you are in the suburbs of the city, trees fall into the background. They're almost like the white noise of your daily commute. You take them for granted. I don't know if you can switch this phrase. It's almost like you aren't seeing the trees for the forest uh, in, in the inverse. And this book opens a reader's eyes to, to that kind of thing. These things that are there with us every day right outside our window. Well, until they aren't. Until they aren't. I mean, because these last, the three winter storms that we had, oh, um, yeah. Getting here today, there is like a whole neighborhood that is right now uh, occupied by Esplende. Is that, I don't, is Esplende? Mm -hmm. the, the tree people. Yeah. And major, major cutting is going on. It's odd because it's not all on the easement. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if the homeowners then hired, but yes, mm. when they're gone. They're gone. They're they're gone. And it's um mm. it's really hard. You can't get those trees back. And that's. And it changes. It changes everything. The um, the beech grove that we lost in our neighborhood, that was a very hard, hard loss because it actually changed the quality of, you'd think it would change the quality of light. And it did to a certain degree because mm -hmm. there was a lot of, of green. They, they were very tall, mature uh, beaches. But it actually changed the quality of how the air felt on your skin. Mm -hmm. And that was... Um, I never imagined something like that before. I didn't know it until, in a way, I didn't learn that part of it until it was gone. Oh, man. Do you know what my favorite things to do during the summertime when there's naturally a lot of noise? There are people out having barbecues or there are leaf blowers or wood chippers driving around. There's just and the cars honking and just everyone is outside. It's summertime. But I like to long after the sun is set, uh, walk out into my backyard, probably right before I go to bed, and look up at the trees that are in 
mm-hmm. my backyard and just watch them kind of silently swaying in the summer breeze. The night breeze, I should say, because it's late. And the leaf blowers are gone. The cars are gone. There's no sound other than the literal wind and me seeing the branches. And those are the moments where I'm like, you guys are swaying in the breeze all day long and we don't get to hear you. And we don't know. I don't think we look at you enough. <laughs> so I had that powerful moment. Do you do you remember some powerful moments like that? Or do you remember some of the questions you were asking on those walks that really ignited the passion to write this book? Well, or to get started Some on the of original it, idea. Yeah, so so initially it was going back in my life mm-hmm. and and thinking about trees. But, you know, during COVID, the, beginning with the lockdown, I was working on this book. Mm-hmm. And um, I started doing a lot. Of, I walk outside to begin with, but I started doing a lot more. And I went to parks and hiked. Um, my husband and I walked in all the cemeteries, like mm-hmm. all around, which is something... I continue to do, and I never did before. Um, and there, you see trees, often mature trees that have been left, have been growing for a very long time because they won't take a tree down cemetery. The trees aren't going to fall on a house, right. and you know they keep them. So there's the the old Royal Oak Cemetery that's that little triangle oh, yeah. be, where Crooks and um, Main Street and Rochester Road splits off. That's a fascinating little plot to walk and right. the trees in there there's some some beautiful evergreen trees in there that um hemlock and uh spruce that are really gorgeous and have to be very old i don't know how old but yeah. but they're old but then some of the questions i mean some of it was just like i want to know mm-hmm. so i have to tell you and i've never connected this really well no that's not true i connected it when i was collecting islands, mm-hmm. as it were. I was a rock hound when I was a kid, oh, okay. and I collected stones from all over. And then I, w- I wanted to know their names. I had a favorite aunt who was a gemologist and lived in North Carolina, and I only saw her every other year. And she would always bring all these amazing gems, and she cut them. But she mined, She would go to the mines, and she would get them, and then she would cut them. So she was an amazing woman. Wow. Um, but she also had regular stones. North Carolina has some pretty amazing uh, rock. So I really wanted to know, like, so, you know, trees were sort of like that. Islands weren't because I was sort of collecting the islands, but it wasn't like islands had a lot more of a feeling. Mm -hmm. Trees do too, but it tends to be independent trees, individuals, not a whole species whole species okay so yes i'm i'm <laughs> i'm backtracking on this now species have certain feel certain ways to me but sure. individual trees it's more like that but i wanted to know like when i go out and see a tree i suddenly wanted to know what it was i was no smarter about tree species really than anyone else other than i knew i'd grown up by poplar trees and so those weren't even completely identified mm-hmm. that is the right family but they were cottonwoods and you know the it was the cotton that came down from the trees but i started just wondering a lot about sort of like where trees are so during the course of writing this book i we added an addition a one room onto our a ranch house and i had the assessor from the city come mm-hmm. it, Yes, it was the assessor, not an inspector. And she, we got talking about trees because I was talking to everybody about trees. And she pulled up. They were just um, putting all of their um, records, digitizing them. And um, she pulled up and there was a picture of my house 
from the 80s when it was sold to the second owners. And she said, would you like this? Because they were literally getting rid of these cards that had the pictures and they'd all been scanned in. So when she gave it to me, there were three pictures glued atop one another. So I could actually see what my front yard looked like in the sycamore when it was a stick and it's huge now. It's gotta be at least 90 feet. Wow. So to see when it was planted, um, the house was built in 56. And I did go back and sort of figure out when they would have been assessing it. And I don't remember now exactly what year it was. But to be able to follow that through and see the size. Or I have two sugar maples on the side of the driveway. Mm -hmm. And in one, it literally is about five feet tall and just a single stick. And it it wants to take over the whole canopy now. So I just sort of wanted to know, like, I wish you can't do that unless it's your own house and property and you can track it back somehow. But I got really curious about, well, I got curious about the land when I was writing about the Cottonwoods. I thought, you know, I could find out what that creek, actually that creek had a name, I'm sure, and it Mm -hmm. turned out to be the Bell Branch of the Rouge River. Who would know? We just called it Creek One. And there was a Creek (laughs) Two also, but the creek I'm talking about with the trees was Creek One. And uh, then I thought, well, I could find out the farmhouse was still there and I thought I could find out who this farm belonged to and what they farmed. And I just went down this amazing story that blew me away. Mm-hmm. The, they they represent history. Mm-hmm. We, we we there's that metaphor maybe of the 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 rings of a tree when you when you chop it right right that shows its years. But these are marking time as far as seeing a baby sycamore and then seeing the seen ma- it this monster majestic yeah. too yes a majestic it's monster. um it is a majestic monster in a good way yes of course yeah sycamores are imposing yeah so when i've i i managed to connect with a city a person in the city planning department of the livonia mm-hmm. and he was really helpful he sent me he was the one who helped me identify what creek it was because it's now underground Mm -hmm. um but he also sent me a 49 aerial 1949 aerial view of the farm before it was developed as a subdivision Mm -hmm. and that was fascinating because then i realized that while i might have been mourning those particular cottonwoods that are no longer there and i did check all the backyards on linden Mm -hmm. um you know there were other trees Mm -hmm there that had to be removed for the subdivision or that's how they did it then. I mean, I hope now they would consider maybe leaving trees, I don't know. And then going back to how this was kind of an evolving thing, I think that you also take us into that process i think there's i think isn't it the chapter about the silver maple where you're yes where you're like i wasn't i maybe wasn't going to include this one but it also leads me into other facets of this book because i think you mentioned that you're you're reflecting on a period of time which is specifically december 2020 and uh, you know that is when the death toll for covid was at its highest and there are several moments in this book where you do take us to those really heavy times that are not that far in the past and I just wanted to pick your brain on the experience of, of capturing that and why you why you wanted why it was important to put that in this book. Okay, so there's there's a couple answers to that, and the one that I'm inclined to give first is that um, I teach three writing weekly writing workshops, and um, it became apparent to me 
right away. So so I was teaching one Wednesday and the next Wednesday I had learned installed and was using Zoom because I was not gonna, I thought that those kind of things were really important. It was important for me, but I knew it was super important for the people in that were in the workshops. Yeah. Like it's gonna sort of maybe hold us together. We didn't know how long at that point this was gonna be. But I started talking to people right from the beginning about documenting in writing what this was like. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, not, and, and I've talked to a lot of people who don't consider themselves writers in the same way. Like, you just need to write this experience down mm -hmm. because we have, you know, records from when the flu of 1911 and 1912 was rampant, mm -hmm. but not a whole lot. You know, it's, it's called from letters. Right. Um, and just doing, if you look at any of those books that were written about that pandemic, you can see the amount of research that went in to try to piece together what happened. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really valuable thing. If it's only for your grandchildren or great-grandchildren, mm -hmm. that is so amazing. Yeah. And so I encouraged, was encouraging the writers in my workshop to document things. And it was really clear to me because I went through this experience of thinking I was coming back from North Carolina and thinking I was I got very sick and I thought mm -hmm. I had COVID. And at that point, my doctor just said, you need to isolate for 14 days and stay home. And so the day that I went out walking was the day that I came across this silver maple, which had a branch that just was like at eye level mm -hmm. in the park near my home. And I had never seen a silver maple flower before. And I think we all were looking at things a little bit differently at that point too, because we were really scared and yeah. we didn't know what was going to happen. And I was so relieved to actually be getting well mm -hmm. and not to be sick with yeah. COVID um, because that was pre-vaccine and right. pre, you know, antivirals and pre everything. So very uncertain. Yeah. yeah. So seeing this little miracle, the flower look, it's very unusual. There's female and male flowers on many trees. Um, and this this flower was red and yellow and was so incredible that it was like, wow, what a gift. And I've gone my whole life living around silver maples mm -hmm. and I've never ever paid attention to this. So when people used to say to me, the trees are budding. What does that mean to you? If somebody says the trees are budding, what do you think? I'm seeing little uh, colorful little things poking out of the branches and then they're usually reddish. You're more observant. Okay. Because what I thought when trees were budding was that the they were the leaves that were budding out. Oh yeah. You know, and there are leaf buds, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but there are first flower buds. Right. And the and those are they're often red. Mm -hmm. so now sometimes leaf buds can also in the sheath that they're in can mm -hmm. look like they're sort of reddish brown. Yeah. Um but it was a real uh, amazing moment to see this flower and think, like at first it was like seeing something completely alien. I mean, I had no idea. Now I know now. So in one of this one of the winter storms that we recently had, a friend of mine said, "Oh, the silver maple buds are all over my backyard," and I had the occasion, and they were, and and you know they are closed when they fall off because of weather like that, mm -hmm. but. Um, I just hadn't ever put it together. So like I'm saying, I'm no, I was no specialist in trees and I still don't consider myself like, um, you know, I know how to look things up mm -hmm. and I know what to look for now. Mm -hmm. So I know 
how to do the identification. But I don't, I can't look at any tree off the street and necessarily pick it out. In general, I highly encourage the enterprise of citizen scientists. I think there's nothing <laughs> yes. wrong with that. I think the more we can learn about nature, the better. Uh, I think it's also the chapter on the English oak where it's the opening where it's going up, taking us back to the, the Women's March of January 2017. And that happens also consistently through this book where I was reading it and I'm learning about your life, but I'm also going through history that is recent and I forget how recent it was. Uh, and then I'm, I'm wondering, well, how is, how is this going to tie into the tree? And she does, <laughs> she does it every time. I thought that was one of the best parts of the book is taking us through so many of these moments. Um, and then making it personal and then teaching us about trees. It's a very unique memoir. Yes, because remember, it did not start out that way. <laughs> I mean, it's this was the vision, you know, that that my editor, Annie Martin, could see this yes. is pretty amazing to yes. me. And um, and it it's so it, there was not a revision based on like making it a memoir. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no added draft it mm -hmm. was like we start with these and then it goes it once you go into publication you've got you know like three big major drafts that happen and but it wasn't because the, anything changed i didn't add another quote essay mm -hmm. i didn't um change any of the essays around i was amazed because the first thing i thought was how am i going to order these because i knew that was not i sort of had them ordered I didn't have them ordered in the way that I wrote them. I had them more ordered chronologically, mm -hmm. like by year, and they're not that way now. But of course, in some essays, I'm all over the map right. in terms of the years too, so. Yeah, and so the thing I was thinking about is this sense of trees making us feel, uh, again, going back to that need for feeling connected um, because these trees are all over all of our neighborhoods. The cover art I want to give a shout out to oh, is amazing. Is that not incredible? Uh, amazing and these these glowing pink roots kind of overlay the subtitle which are really great but I don't know at this book and how you wrote it uh, a cliched metaphor gave me kind of a sense of feeling grounded again literally uh, like I was tapping into the root network that trees use sometimes to talk to each other which is also amazing I want to uh, I want to also talk about the idea of a memoir that will go back to that and especially how you are a teacher because we started a writer's group here at the library during also during COVID because kind of from that same impulse, we thought people might want to get into a room and if if not even just to see each other, talk right. to each other. Right. But we, we'd always kind of wanted to start a writer's group and a lot of the people that we got were keen on writing a memoir and they weren't. 100% certain that they necessarily wanted to write about COVID, but they were very certain they wanted to start a memoir. How did you feel about the idea of a memoir? Was it something you... you no, were, that was the oops. I was really <laughs> flattered. For, it would never like even said, entered your mind. It would have been something I would have said, here's something I'm never going to write because I've written a <laughs> novel. I've written poetry. I started as a poet. I mean, I've written... And then, non, you know, then the nonfiction bit with the Great Lakes Island Escapes. And then I wrote a second book on the Great Lakes, which is a kid's uh, juvenile All about the Great Lakes. All about the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I didn't. It was a, a strange feeling. And I guess I wasn't sure how it was going to work. Mm -hmm. The problem, of course, being inside of the writing of a book is that you can only 
do the next thing and you don't it's very hard to step away i can't ever see this with fresh eyes i can't see it i look my client you know i teach workshops but i also work with individual clients on their manuscripts Mm -hmm. and after a certain point if i've worked with them through one draft and they've written a second draft and it might be their fourth or fifth draft at that point i can't i don't have fresh eyes like Mm -hmm. i can't i'm less helpful Mm -hmm. and i often suggest they, you know, I help them find someone else who can look at it freshly. Mm -hmm. So about writing a memoir, I think that many people, especially when they start to write, they write about what they know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a good, that's a really good place to start. Mm -hmm. And I think then maybe after a while, people write about what they don't know and want to know about. You know, they write about questions. And I had so many questions about trees in this little this little, um, it was the size of a, one of the little moleskin journals. And every day I wrote a question, at least one question. And uh, I could see where my leanings were. Sometimes you don't know, mm-hmm. you know, like where to go mm-hmm. writing wise. And so you try to think it out. And that isn't always the right way to go. It is a singular experience to write a book. It is. <laughs> it really is. It is. You really can get uh, get lost, lost in the weeds. Uh, there's a book, there's a chapter in here, and I think it's possibly the last chapter. Am I getting this right? On the Japanese Zelkova? Oh, I- <laughs> yes, and that, that story is so funny <laughs> because I had this great plan that these would all be Michigan trees right. or Great Lake area trees. Sure. And um, But then I spend time, both my daughters live out of state, and so mm-hmm. I spend time in North Carolina and I spend time in Colorado, and I thought, Oh, this will be great. I'll do one tree. And actually, the Colorado Pinion, which I wrote about in the second to last mm-hmm. essay, um, was the first um, tree that I didn't know that I identified using um, the Arbor Day Foundation guide, oh, awesome. which is really a great guide mm-hmm. Like, because you just talk about yes and no. You just yes or no it all the way through until you've got the identification. And I did it online. I have the guide that I carry with me now, but I originally did it. They have an online site that's really great for that. But then in North Carolina, I was going to do the Loblolly pine Mm -hmm. because it's a pine tree we don't have. Um, And I thought that would be interesting. It was something my my granddaughter was very interested in these big, they look like, um, you know, like bottle brushes. Mm-hmm. They're really t- long, long trunk and then really bristly. But uh, then I had this experience where I, my grandson stopped breathing while I was mm-hmm. with him. And um, it was very traumatic. Yeah. And I sat down after he was breathing again and sleeping normally. We had, we had been on a walk. And there were all these trees planted. I was on Duke University's campus. And so I was in an area where there were chairs and tables and all of these trees. Oh, yeah. And I I just thought, oh, this is the tree that I'm going to write about. And I was convinced it was crepe myrtle because they are so plentiful and they're big and they're all over. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't discover until I was actually writing it. So initially, there wasn't an, an odd draft where it was like, I went through the whole thing and I, I didn't keep a lot of that in about having misidentified. And in fact, the appendices, um, that appendix entry mm-hmm. at one time had gave a bonus. I think I left it that way. I think you get the bonus. That's right. You yep. don't get the Japanese Okova. 
No, well, there is a Japanese sankofa, so I guess that's yeah. not true. Oh, you know where it is? It's on the website. Okay. So on my website, under more tree information, mm-hmm. it's a bonus mm-hmm. because I didn't go back and do all of that um, for right. both tree. You know, I've done it already for the crepe myrtle. So, um, yes, that was quite the interesting. That was my, my first major misidentification after mm-hmm. having written the whole essay and then discovering I was not right. And again, another instance where you're kind of revealing your process of like finding old journal entries and realizing you were going to be writing this book. Oh, and that was bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that that's very bizarre. It's one thing to know that I had this little journal that I was asking questions and they were about trees, but it was another thing to go back and actually come across something where I'd actually written mm-hmm. the fact that that was, and that was, I have no memory of that. If I hadn't written it down, I mm-hmm. would have no idea but i sort of think that as writers we're we are sort of led we have questions inside of us Mm -hmm. and we may not recognize those questions so i don't know what my next i've written a number of essays um that are in various states since i've written this and they're truly essays they started out as essays they developed as essays they they are still essays but I don't have a big project in every book of the three books that I've written. I always knew what I was going to write next. So this is very different. Like, and they're not essays that I could see being in a collection together. They don't have a a common thread other than I wrote them. And it's not, they're not, um, they're not as much of memoir. One is, but the rest, well, that's not true. I guess they are, but there's not going to be another um, memoir (laughs) coming out. (laughs) I was just talking to someone about, again, kind of the the singular experience of writing a book. And I, I would love to get some advice from you for any of our listeners. Uh, when you, because I think there's a point in every book where you get really knee deep into it. And it's almost like you're so far into it, but yet still feel so far away from finishing. And you don't know when, you don't know what it needs, or you have an inkling of what it needs, or you sort of know where you're going but and you have so much progress already and it's this is the experience of the writers and they bang their head against the wall uh how do you get through that sort of murky metal part <laughs> well i how think do you forge on yeah so um i just met with a client this morning who is really quite i would say she's got a complete draft of a memoir now she lost her her husband, who was her soulmate, and she's written a beautiful, beautiful book. Mm-hmm. Um, and but she knows she knew it's it's in pieces, mm-hmm. and it's um, different types. So she has notes to this husband, and she has then more chapter kind of things of like this is that looks at all different facets, mm-hmm. and it's and it's she's got a great voice, and it's beautifully told. But she was just like. I need to do this. I need more dialogue. I need more. Um, I need more sensory description. And, and I said, okay. So here's what you do. You you don't think about. I need all these things yeah. in in this big manuscript. Yeah. Instead, and she she feels like that in the middle. She had several essays that she felt needed to be stronger, and so did people, including me, who read them. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, you've got four essays. Just pull them out. Do uh, print them off as hard copy. Set everything else aside. Don't look at your comments from what people said. She's had a, we did a beta reading group for her. So six people have read from that and she's shared it with other friends. So she's got a lot of, had a lot of feedback. I said, you need to just clear that all off. Mm -hmm. You've got, take the first one, 
you know, start today, it's Monday, this week, just look at this. This is the only thing you're writing, the only thing you're thinking about. Because the the hard thing about getting deep, knee deep into a book and feeling like you still have a long ways to go is that it doesn't, you still have to do just the next thing. Sure. And if you can forget about the, that's like sort of a meta thing. You're like looking at yourself on this timeline. Mm-hmm. And and that's not going to get you to the end in a way that's satisfactory. It's the eating a train metaphor, maybe. It is. Yeah. Um, and it can feel a little bit different with uh, fiction than nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So, and I think part of that is, is that it's, if you just focus on getting down the draft, you can then always fix it up. So the idea is just there, especially in a novel, you're sort of racing yourself to the end. Mm-hmm. You want to get stuff down without doing the editing. And that's a challenge sure. in and of itself, right? Um, but I think... I think it is to isolate what's the next thing I want to do and then just do that and yeah. not be thinking about the end of the whole thing. Just think about the end of that little piece. Mm-hmm. So today she'll start with an essay that she's not happy with, but she's it's gone through multiple drafts already. And she'll just and then if on Friday, I said, if on Friday, you don't like it, it doesn't feel like the rest of the book, mm-hmm. then then you can set it aside. But yeah. don't just throw it out because clearly there was something that told you that was part of the story. Mm-hmm. Stay patient. Well, stay focused on small bites. Yeah. You know, it's really, it, except when you're writing the first draft of a novel, mm-hmm. you need to keep, for, for me, my experience has been, I need to keep writing really fast and just keep going to get the whole story down and not let my editing mind come in, mm-hmm. which is really challenging. Yes. Which is why we need folks like you to help us along the way. Uh, So I've obviously revealed that my favorite tree is a sycamore. Your favorite tree? Well, it's interesting. I have to tell you that um, several dear, dear friends uh, threw a book reception for me yesterday. Nice. And I had the idea of having name tags because they're people from different parts of my life. So two of my workshops and um, my singing group I belong to and my family and my husband's you know there were like all these different groups that weren't i knew them all but they weren't going to know each other and so i brought name tags and i asked people to put down their name and their favorite tree and somebody pointed out to me after i'd given a reading that i was not wearing a name tag i said well everybody knows me they said but we don't know your favorite tree and i would have to say in my lifetime my favorite tree's probably been the cottonwood nice just because that those were my friends i mean that i had a treehouse in one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would have to say in this part of my life, mm-hmm. it's probably been the sycamore. So we, we've we lived in the house we live in in Royal Oak for almost um, 17 years. It will be 17 years this summer. And that tree is right outside. So my study is in a front room that's on three walls, our windows. Nice. And so, and then I have this floodplain of a front yard that has mature trees, all sorts of. I have a lot of trees in my yard, um, but the sycamore is the closest. Mm-hmm. Well, no, there's a honey locust, but you know that's not. <laughs> the sycamore is unique. Yeah, um, there's only a handful actually on my morning walk that I see, so there's not a whole lot in, mm-hmm. in the, my part of Royal Oak, and it's right not far from my window, and it's what I stare at when I'm thinking. You know, there's a lot to look at about it. Um, so I would have to say that I too probably excellent yes. I also enjoy the the birch, which seems like the little tiny 
distant cousin of the sycamore because it also gets kind of shitty in its own yeah, little way. Yeah, but that's a di- yes, and it also is because it can't stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, there is going to be so I post um, I post on my blog at my website every uh, Tuesday, and this week I ask people. I did this little interactive exercise at this at this book reception yesterday and I got a really, really good piece on a birch. Actually from the woman I met with the client I met with this morning, she did it on her phone because she's not from around here. And so she was actually Oh my. Yes. And so I'm going to post that because part of the reason that I started the blog was I wanted to feature other people's tree stories Mm -hmm. as well, which I haven't done yet. But tomorrow's blog is going to have Mary Robertson's birch story on it. That is her favorite tree. So it was fun walking around. So it would say like Alyssa, River Birch, yes. um, you know, or there were a number of, there were sycamores. People tend to oh, yes. like sycamores tree people. I found uh, at least an image of the tree. It is shed. Is this your sycamore? It is shed so much. It is all white. And this is a winter shot. Oh, yeah. Of yeah. So go on my blog yeah. because I have one at the top of my tree. Oh, and it's so interesting. It's so this vibrant. is very much um, some sycamores grow very different. Mm-hmm. So there's one a street over that has split off about four feet up and has two really main like trunks sure. that are going up. But mine looks very much like, well, you sort of have two yeah. trunks and then you've got a, a really third. So they do these weird things with um, with suckers coming. They almost, they the arborists call them sucker branches. So they, they never seem to get very big. Right. And we had a large one break off in one of the recent storms. But um, yeah, well, they're beautiful, the white against the blue sky. Of and course. I have, Can't I resist have, it. A, oh, Can't they are gorgeous. It. Can we link to your blog in the show notes of this podcast oh, episode? Yes. Of course we will. Yes. And to your website too, so folks can find out more about the manuscript. The blog is on the website. Great. Um, so yeah, you get to the website and subscribe and then pull it out of promotions. I don't know why, but everybody has a problem subscribing to blogs these days. So. And how perfect the book's coming out in April, right? The book is out. Yeah, right around the time when, as we said, the trees are budding yes. again. It's like the... I always feel, again this this book is making me look at trees again but I do always feel like in the winter time it's like the trees go away for a little while and then they come back in in April just in time for the book well they're sleeping they're so, sleeping yes yeah. Maureen Dumpy thank you so much for coming on our podcast oh thanks so much for having me Jeff this has been fun it's been a pleasure to talk to you divining a memoir in trees and part of the made in Michigan writer series Wayne State University Press so congrats again Thank you very much. You have listened to another episode of A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast, and it's brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. Uh, We thank John Duffy for giving us opening and closing music. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to ferndalefriends.org, but please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we'll be back next week with more.